Well, great to see everyone uh, again. Great to see everyone. Excited to be here with you as always. Uh, today, has been said, uh, as has been said a few times, uh, we're starting a, a brand new sermon series, walking through uh, the book of Second Peter. And so, if you have a Bible, um, I want me to invite you to turn there with me. Um, if you're not familiar with God's Word, uh, or you don't have a copy of it, there should be one in the seat, kind of pocket uh, rack below you, uh, you can take that out. Um, my advice to you would be to turn to the very back of that book. You should hit a book called Revelation, and then just start going in reverse. You'll hit Jude, and there's like a bunch of Johns in there. <laughs> and then if you uh, go past those Johns, you'll hit Peter's, okay? And we're in the second one, Second Peter. Uh, here at Freedom Village, uh, we, we, love, we love teaching through uh, the Bible, uh, verse by verse. We believe that uh, every word of this book is uh, inspired by God, that, that this, this book that, that you have in your hands, that, that it is living and, and active and, and breathing, and, and every word of it has the ability to transform hearts and, and lives. And so we study the Bible here uh, we search it with that expectation. And so uh, I have no doubt um, that God has great things in store for us as we turn to the book of Second Peter and as we just look at the words of a simple introduction today. All right? So you ready to dive into the book of Second Peter together? All right. Wonderful. A couple of you. Good. <laughs> Good. Well, most, uh, most of American... I'm going to caveat this because I'm going to talk about football just for 30 seconds. <laughs> Most American football fans okay, are familiar with the name Vince Lombardi. Uh, he was the legendary Hall of Fame uh, football coach for uh, the Green Bay Packers. And those who are familiar uh, with him, I see you, Jimin, uh, with him, okay, a huge Packers fan. All right, uh, those who are familiar with him are also uh, familiar with a story that's often told about him and his coaching strategy. See, every first practice of the year, uh, Lombardi, Vince Lombardi, the coach, would, would gather his guys, his players, up in, in the locker room. And uh, remember, these are, are pro athletes, okay, professional level. And he would grab a football and he would hold it up in front of everyone. And he would say, gentlemen, this is a football, as if they'd never seen a football before. And then he would proceed to file them up and, and walk them out of the locker room onto the football field and walk them around the field. And gentlemen, these are the out-of-bounds lines. Gentlemen, we call this an end zone. This is where you score a touchdown. Gentlemen, this is a field goal post. As if, again, they've never seen these things before. He'd go through all of the basics of the game. So he, was, he was famous for always starting with the fundamentals, reminding them every single year, no matter how many years they've been playing this sport, reminding them every single year of the basics. And I bring that up because Peter, the Apostle Peter, does the same sort of thing here in this particular letter. Uh, he is writing this letter to remind the church of the basics of the faith. 
he actually uses that word remind a, a few times. Like in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Or in chapter 3, verse 1, he, he says, I'm stirring you up by way of reminder. And reminding people of the basics is important, right? The, the gospel is worth being reminded of. The gospel is worth repeating. And indeed, you and I, we need to rehearse it again and again. If you think about this idea of reminding and repetition, uh, just think about the Bible itself. For example, the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and in those Gospels, how much overlap there really is there with the stories of what Christ had done and what he taught. There's so much consistency in regards to detail that's repeated over and over and over again. See, as, as followers of Jesus, we know, we know that we can so easily drift away from the fundamentals of the faith. And therefore, it's important to be reminded again and again of the basics. You know, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, we studied this book uh, uh, last year, I think it was, but chapter 3, verse 1, he says it this way. He says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. In other words, being reminded of the same truths it is a safeguard against heresy. Because the better that you and I understand the gospel, the better that you and I can detect false teaching. And, and that's, virtu- that's vitally important to this letter because here's what's happening in, in the context of this letter. It's important to understand. The apostle Peter is about to die. And, and he knows that, by the way. We're told that in verse 14 of chapter 1. He knows he's going to die. And as he sees his life and his ministry coming to a close, he is deeply concerned for the church. See, what happened was false prophets and false teachers um, had come into the church. And they, not only that, but they had risen up into church leadership. And so, so much, because of that, so much of this letter is Peter focusing on the essentials of the faith. It's on the basics of our faith so that we will not drift into heretical teaching, but also so that we can recognize false teaching when we hear it. Peter's heart and motive in this letter is for the uh, the church to be rooted in the truth of the gospel. Uh, We can say it this way. He wants us to know the gospel. He wants us to know Jesus well. And in fact, that, that word knowledge or to know, it's used something like 11 times in this letter. And so if you're looking for a word uh, to, to hang on to as we go through Second Peter or a key word, a trigger word to look for, it's that word knowledge, to, to know God which is not just, let's be clear, not just an intellectual exercise. It's not what he's talking about, but rather a personal, intimate knowledge of a person. See, it's, we know this. It's, it's not just knowing about Christ, but 
knowing Christ. Notice how Peter bookends this entire letter. First, you know, first start of it, the very end of it. In chapter 1, verse 2, he says this. I think we have it on the screen. May grace and peace be multiplied to you, look, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then at the end of the letter, chapter 3, verse 18, the very end of it, he says this, but grow in the grace and, here it is again, knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So Peter, Peter wants our knowledge of the Lord to increase. He wants it to be multiplied. He wants us to to grow in our knowledge of the Lord. And, And so because of these bookends, what happens is, Everything in between these two verses is to help us towards this end, to help us grow in this knowledge. Peter is set out here in this letter to remind and to reemphasize, to, to ground the church in the full knowledge of the saving truth of Jesus. Okay, and so that's where we're headed in this book. And with that, with that, now we start verse 1. And we're going to get really far. Peter says this, Simeon, Peter, and we'll pause. Okay. We stop there just for a second, just for a brief moment. Peter here, it's interesting. He actually chooses to use um, his Jewish name, Simeon. It's, uh, it's unique. He's never called this term Simeon anywhere else really in the Bible. Usually he's Simon or he's, he's Peter, but he, he chooses the word Simeon, his Jewish name followed by the name that Jesus himself, Jesus Christ, gave Simeon the name Peter, which means rock. And so what I want us to understand is that just in this little introduction of his name, in his, his greeting here, we actually have a, have a testimony of the transforming power of the gospel. You didn't know that when you opened the letter. Simeon Peter, that's, that's a testimony. This was Simeon, a Jewish Fisherman, originally from the town of Bethsaida, who met Jesus, who made him a fisher of men and a leader in the church. And so it's a powerful statement as we start this letter. And and if you're not familiar with Peter, uh, he's a pretty big deal in the Bible, okay? Pretty big deal. I don't have time to go into the the entire bio of Peter, but just a, a few significant highlights about his life and his ministry. Uh, We know that Peter was the first disciple to recognize Jesus for who he actually was. Uh, He understands that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah in Mark chapter 8. In in Acts chapter 2, we know that Peter is the one who stands up and preaches on the day of Pentecost, the day when the Holy Spirit came down to indwell, permanently indwell followers of Jesus. And we know that through that that message, that day, uh, thousands and thousands of people were saved. They came to saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 10, we know that Peter preaches to a man named Cornelius, uh, who was a Gentile. He actually becomes the first non-Jewish follower of Jesus. And after that, from that point forward, we know that the gospel spreads throughout the entire known world. It's a gospel not just for Jews, but for all people. Peter is responsible in some ways of of catalyzing that. And we know Peter spends the rest of his life after Acts 10 either in prison. He's just doing two things. He's either in prison or 
he's traveling around and, and preaching the gospel throughout the Roman world. He goes to places like Corinth, places like Antioch, other places like Syria. Okay? So this is Peter. Well, then Peter continues. Simeon Peter, a, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ. And these titles or self-designations are significant because they tell us a, a couple of things. Right? Peter, let's understand, Peter could have started with a number of titles. Like he could have said, uh, Peter, his holiness, right? You know, like Grandmaster Peter, I don't know, right? Jedi, I don't know, Peter, right? The leader of the church, you know me, right? Or Simeon Peter, my name speaks for itself, right? He doesn't do that. He, he chooses the word servant, servant or, or slave, actually. Because at the end of the day, Peter knows what's true of every single one of us. Listen, that we are all servants of the master, our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in this designation, we, we see a certain level of humility here, which is a good sign for what we know about Peter's past. At the same time, Peter does designate himself as an apostle. And, and that's important for us to to underline or or to circle or to highlight that Peter is an apostle because what that means is, and and follow me here, that what this means is that these words that Peter's writing, they come with authority. In other words, uh, they are not just opinions. They're not just suggestions on, on how to live a good life or how to live your best life now. They're not suggestions on that. They're not suggestions that you and I are able to, to, to freely take and leave as we see fit, like so many people in the church are, are doing these days. Well, I like this part of the Bible, but not that part. I like what Jesus said here, but not what Paul said there. No, no. This is authoritative, these words. These words are the Lord's authoritative, inspired words. And so we have to keep that in mind as we work through the letter of Second Peter. So Peter introduces himself, and then he addresses his audience. Look at this. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, uh, we're not told explicitly who who Peter is writing to, but I do believe we have a a great clue as to the audience in chapter 3, Verse 1, when Peter says this, this is the second letter that I'm writing to you. And so if we assume, if we make the assumption that that's his first letter, the letter that we studied last year, 1 Peter, we know that this is the church, that this is written to the church, to Christians who are scattered around modern-day Turkey. Okay, um, But who exactly this is written to we, we actually can't say 100%, but let's just say 99%, okay? Percent. But, but the good news is this. Who the audience is, specifically, isn't actually that important. What is important is what he says about these people. That they have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Ours meaning Peter and the other apostles, That's pretty remarkable if you really think about it, isn't it? If you were to put yourself into this verse, right? You might 
think or believe, make, make, make logical sense, that, that Peter has a better standing before God than you and I. I mean, he's an apostle, right? He walked with Jesus, literally walked with Jesus. He, he wrote a, a portion of the Bible. But, but no, when it comes to our standing with God, Peter tells us that all Christians, all followers of Jesus have equal standing by the righteousness of God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. Or you might say it this way, there is an equality when it comes to God's kingdom or in God's kingdom. And, and why? Why is there an equality in the kingdom? Well, it's because we see here that this faith, this faith that he's talking about, it's obtained, he says. It's obtained, or another translation would say, it is received all the same way. That's why. And that is, it's not based, this faith is not based on our efforts. It's not based on our works. It's not about our righteousness, but instead based on the righteousness of Jesus. See, we know this, none of us are righteous, and therefore none of us could enter into God's kingdom. But because Jesus lived a righteous life, and because he chose to give us his righteousness, we can stand, we can stand before God. Right? That's the good news of the gospel, and it's also the reason why we have equal standing. Because our faith, our place, our position before God is not about us. It's about Jesus. And notice what Peter calls Jesus here as well. Actually, uh, it'd be easy to just gloss over this, but it's so important. This is one of the clearest statements about Jesus and who he is in the entire Bible, specifically in regards to his deity. Peter calls Jesus, look at it, our God and Savior. And so, listen, we are made righteous today. You and I have the opportunity to receive righteousness today because our God and our Savior, Jesus, has made us righteous. Our blessed hope today is in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we need to be clear. We're not talking about some generic God that our society wants us to, to talk about. Right? Much of our world doesn't want us to pray in the name of Jesus. Uh, we shouldn't mention his name. It's sort of off limits, if you will. It's, a, it's not a conversation. It's not a name you want to bring up at the Thanksgiving table, if you will. But no, our, our salvation, Peter says, is built on Jesus and Jesus only. The one who is God. The one who is the Savior. And understand this as well, how significant, how impactful these words would have meant in this day, at this time, in first century Rome. See, every time, every time the New Testament writers called Jesus the Savior and the Lord, they were actually directly, they're making a direct statement they are implying there that Caesar is not God, that Caesar is not the Savior, that Caesar is not the Lord. Right? We know that during this time, that language actually was designated or given to all of the top Roman 
leaders, right? During this letter specifically, we know this is Emperor Nero. And so this language was placed on places like coins, okay, or, or on the front of buildings. They would say, Nero is Lord, right? Or, or Nero is Savior, actually. They, they, they were to worship him as a god. But Peter is saying here, no, Jesus Christ is alone, God and Savior. Nero is not. And by the way, those words would actually get Peter killed. Those very words. That he was not willing to say Nero is Lord, but instead stood before him and the other officials and said these words, Christos Kyrios, Jesus Christ is Lord. And that would get Peter crucified. Actually, at the end of his life, his last request, he begged, he begged the leaders uh, to crucify him upside down because he didn't, he didn't see himself as being worthy to die in the exact same way as his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. These words mean something. Jesus Christ is God. He is Lord. There's no one else. And so when we, that means for us, that when we as the church confess this truth, Today, even today, we along with Peter and all the other saints throughout history are saying, we are declaring there are no other gods. We believe in our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our hope is built on nothing else but in Jesus Christ and his righteousness. Amen? That's verse 1. That's verse 1. I promise we're going to get through the book. Some of you are new, are like, oh man, it's, it's been like 20 minutes, verse 1. And those of you who have been here nodding, mm-hmm. yeah, we're, <laughs> it's what we expected. I'm glad to be back. <laughs> I promise we'll get through it. Well, the greeting continues in verse 2, okay, and we will pick up pace, pace now, okay. <laughs> verse 2, Peter says this, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord, of Jesus our Lord. So this is very similar, actually, if you were to look at the front of 1 Peter, very similar, almost identical to how Peter opens up his first letter, but then there's a little addition there. There's the phrase, in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And and again, this is Peter, think of it this way, this is Peter uh, sort of tipping his hand uh, to let us know the focus and the purpose of this letter. He wants the knowledge of God knowing God, knowing Jesus, to be multiplied to us. And honestly, um, this this point here, it's so central to our lives. This idea that we are to grow in the knowledge of Jesus, that we grow to know Jesus. Uh, The great J.I. Packer, some of you are familiar with with him, he uh, sadly died not too long ago. But in his famous work, probably his most famous work, Knowing God, I highly recommend that you uh, put that book in your library. You know that book, J.I. Packer's Knowing God. He says this. I, I love this. Just incredible. He says this. What were we made for to know God? What aim should we set our li- ourselves in life to know God? What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? Knowledge of God. What is the best thing in life, bringing more joy and delight and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Once you, listen, listen to this, 
Once you become aware that the main business that you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. See, if you and I would just wake up every day believing that our main business, our priority is knowing God, knowing God, then that would have to have an effect on us, wouldn't it? So let's, let's keep this as our priority. Let, let's pray for one another to this end, that we would grow in our knowledge of God, in our knowledge of the gospel. And let's, again, keep this in mind as we work throughout this letter. Well, verses 3 through 4 begins a section where Peter, what he does here, it's, it's interesting. He, he basically uh, gives us the privileges that we have as followers of Jesus in verse 3 through 4. And then in verses 5 through 11, which we're going to look at next week, he urges us to grow in godliness because of what we've been given. Okay? And we'll see that this is actually how the Christian life works as well. We have obtained things, we have been given things, and we are to live our life accordingly. That we have this standing with God, before God. We have resources from God, you might say. And then in that, we are asked to go out and live a certain way. So the question then we start with is, so what are we given? What are we given? And we're going to spend the rest of our time today answering that question. And I want to highlight for you three things, three truths about us, uh, if you will. Or we'll say it this way if you're taking notes. Three privileges that we have as followers of Jesus. Three privileges that we have as followers of Jesus. And so first of all, we have power. That's number one. We see this clearly in the text. We have power. We've, We've been given power. Peter tells us something that's wonderfully true about us today, and it's this, that Christ has provided everything that we need, but you've got to continue the verse, for life and godliness. Don't take this out of context. You've heard some preachers maybe are on a bumper sticker. He's provided everything that we need. Finish it. For life and godliness. It says this. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Have you ever um, ordered something on Coupon or uh, Amazon? Or maybe it's Ikea. And you ordered a piece of furniture to your house or, or something that you need to put uh, together. That's a nightmare for me. But, uh, but then you, you get the box and you look at the box and these awful words are written on them. It says this, other items necessary for assembly. Like, we're all thinking the same thing. Why, why don't you just put what I need for your product in the box? Right? Do I look like, look at me, do I look like the type of guy that knows what an Allen wrench is? Okay? Or one that has one, or would know where to find one. Okay? I, I don't. Okay? I have to order one on Coupon, the company that didn't give me the Allen wrench in the first place. Okay. All right. Right. Or maybe you get this electronic. Right? I love this. Get this electronic, you're excited about it, you get it, you open it up, and then it doesn't come with the batteries. And so it's useless to you until you go out and get, get the batteries. Right? Look, I, I like, personally, I don't know about you, I like 
when all the necessary items are in the box. And in a much more significant way, that's the reality of our salvation. That's what Peter's saying, that we are lacking nothing for life and for godliness. That when we come to Christ, when we put our faith in in Jesus Christ, in that instant, we have every single thing that we need. And and it's pretty incredible. It's pretty awesome uh, the way that this is written. It's literally in the Greek. In Greek language, there's no exclamation point, okay? And so um, he, he puts a key word in the front here to make it sound like this. Peter is literally saying in this verse, can you believe this? That's what he's saying. Can you believe this, church? We have everything. We have all that we need. We have all the tools. That Everything came in the box. And so what that means for us, though, is that it's not a question of whether or not you and I can be godly anymore. It's a question of whether or not godliness is the pursuit of your life. Is godliness your goal? Do you crave it? Do you have a passion for it? Do you desire it? And if you do, then you need to know and you need to see that this pursuit of godliness is not a hopeless one. That this pursuit is not a a, a helpless battle. We have the power. You have the power. And again, for, for what reason? So simple, yet so profound. So that you can live a life for Jesus and for his kingdom. You have power today so that you can say no to sin. That's it. That's what Peter is saying. And don't miss this detail as well. Peter says that this has been granted to you. It's a beautiful, assuring word. Because what this means is that this power in itself, it's a gift. It's it's a gift of, of grace. See, you and I, we were meant to, designed to revere God. We were meant to, made to, be in awe of Jesus. We're meant to to worship him, to say, worthy is is your name. To to, to love him and, and to love others. We're designed for this. And divine power has been given to us, granted to us to make that a reality of our lives. And notice that little phrase. It's very important you see this. Through the knowledge of him, he says. Through the knowledge of him. So, in other words, we enjoy this power through this knowledge. Okay? Let's try to, try to hone in here. This knowledge of Jesus. We receive this power through knowledge of Jesus. That's what Peter says. And again, this is not uh, an intellectual assent. Okay? It's, it's not just an intellectual idea, but a personal, intimate relationship with Jesus. It means that knowing Christ, growing deeper in our communion with God, leads us, will lead you to grow in godliness. It will lead you to godly living. That's the idea here. Or we could say it this way, maybe to simplify it, that the, the more we're with him, the, the more we grow to be like him. Does that make sense? The more that you're with Jesus, the more that you're going to grow to be like Jesus. So Jesus calls us, he calls you 
follow me, like, like Peter, he calls you to himself, then he grants you power, and as you and I behold his, his glory and his majesty more and more, we grow in godliness more and more. That's actually the picture of the Christian life. That's the picture of the life of faith. Uh, we're like Lucy in Narnia. Okay? For those of you who are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, you remember her, Lucy? Maybe some of you have just seen the movie, okay? Lion, the Witch, in the Wardrobe. It'll still work. This will talk, okay? But if you haven't, this girl, Lucy, and uh, she's growing up, like we all do. Uh, she grows up, and as she gets older, she approaches this lion. This lion's name is Aslan. Aslan is a picture of the person of Jesus Christ. And she approaches Aslan and and she says this to him. Aslan, you're you're bigger. And he says, that's because you're older, little one. To which she responds back to him, not because you are Aslan. And he says back to that, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. Listen, that should be the Christian life. Every year we grow, we should find Jesus to be more glorious, more and more beautiful, more grand, more excellent. God gives us everything that, that, that we need. God doesn't just convert us. He doesn't just save us and then just say, hey, good luck in the world. Good luck to you. He's given us everything that we need. We have divine power to live a life for Jesus and his kingdom today. Second, we are given God's promises. We are given God's promises. We have the privilege, you might say. We have the privilege of God's promises. Peter says in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. By which he has granted to us his precious And very great promises. We've been given his promises. Peter says, glorious actually. Glorious promises have been given to God's people through the gospel. This gospel that provides us with everything that we need. He says, Jesus, who is excellent, who is glorious. Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. And by nature, follow me here. By nature of belonging to Jesus, you have received or inherited those promises. But not just that, you actually get to experience those promises as well. And what are these promises? Well, there are many, over 300 in the Old Testament. Those are all included here. Things like that there will be forgiveness of sins. We get that and we're experiencing that. Things like We will be, the Old Testament promise, you will receive or have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those of us who are in Christ, we have received that and we are experiencing uh, being filled with the Holy Spirit. Or we should be every single day. We receive and are experiencing these promises, right? But, But more than that, what Peter has in mind here is the promise, the specific promise of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus' second coming and his establishment of his kingdom. Now, if you search there in the text, you can't see that. But if you go to chapter 3, 
you'll see this. Because when Peter uses the word promise, it's in regards to Jesus' return for the church. For example, if you flip over and look at chapter 3, this isn't on the screen. But you'll see in chapter 3, verse 4, he says, They will say, that's the false teachers, where is the promise, here it is, where's the promise of Jesus' coming? So, so false teachers are skeptical, he says. They're cynical. They're denying that Jesus Christ will come again. Or, or in chapter 3, verse 9, he says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his, what, promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So Peter says, the Lord is gracious. He's gracious in delaying his second coming. That there's a purpose, there's a reason, a good reason why Jesus has not returned yet for his church because he is so full of grace that even now he is giving time for people to repent and to believe before he comes again. And then in verse 13 of chapter 3, Peter says, but according to his promise, and then what? What's the promise? We are waiting for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Right? So this is a promise. But we know that, again, the false teachers of that day were denying this. They're denying. They're saying there is no second coming. Uh, you can actually, what they're really saying is, you can live however you want because Jesus isn't returning again. And so Peter says, no, 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 no. We are people who have inherited these promises, who are experiencing these promises. And we look forward, therefore, to the fulfillment of that glorious day when Jesus will return and when we will see him face to face. We live now. We live on the promise that we have a very real a very real, tangible salvation now. And yet at the same time, we are waiting, we are eagerly waiting for the total fulfillment, for the fullness of that salvation. And Peter calls this a precious and great promise. You know, we are living in a world that is is full of, of so many empty promises, right? So many things in our world that promise to give us Fulfillment, promise to give us uh, satisfaction, right? If you just get the, the good grades, like, then you'll finally make it. You get in, in the good school, you get the, uh, good, do well in your university, and then you get the good job, you'll be taken care of. You, if you just meet the right person and, and marry that person, then you'll be totally satisfied and happy and, and fulfilled. But here's what we know. Even though some of those things, most of those things are, are good, only God's promises reign completely true. Every word that he has spoken to us proves true. And so the reality, the reality that we have not just been given God's promises, but also get to experience God's promises, that and that alone should should bring us great joy and great hope today. We have everything that we need, Peter says, for life and for godliness. We have power. We have promises And then finally, we see this. We have the privilege of being partakers. We are partakers, okay? I don't always do it, but I gave you three Ps today, all right? All right? Good preacher gives you (laughs) something easy to remember so that you remember it for two weeks instead of one, all right? I'm kidding. (laughs) Take good notes, and then you won't forget. 
We are partakers. <laughs> we are partakers. Peter says that these promises, what's happened through them, what's happened through these promises, through believing in Jesus and the fulfillment, through believing in the fulfillment of these promises, he actually says here, it's awesome. Something actually happens in your nature. Look at the text. He says, so that through them, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Partaker. Great word. It's a familiar word to a lot of us in Greek. It's the word koinonia. Okay, it's a word that means a fellowship, but specifically it means to share or to participate in something. And so, for example, if after the service today, uh, someone comes up to you and asks you to partake in lunch with them today, I don't know who would ask that way. Like, would you like to partake in lunch with me today? I don't know. Up to you to go to lunch with that person. But, but, would you, <laughs> but if someone came up to you and asked you, would you like to partake in lunch with me today? What they're asking you to do is to go with them, Right? And to enjoy a time of food and fellowship together. That's what they're asking you to do. And so what Peter says here is that we are partaking in the divine nature. Nature. Now nature, what is it? Well, nature determines what you do. Your nature determines what you do and and how you live. So for example, a pig and a sheep don't really eat the same things, right? Why? Because they have a different nature. Eagles fly. Dolphins swim. Why? Because they have a different nature. And and followers of Jesus share in the divine nature, meaning that you and I have a different appetite. We have different desires than those that are in the world who don't belong to Jesus. It means that we crave the things of the kingdom. It means that we now have a hunger, a a thirst, a a desire for Jesus rather than the things of this world now in this new nature. It it means that we share in in the character, the very character of Jesus Christ, sharing things like his love, his mercy, his grace, his peace. It means that we are new creations now. And once again, this is something that we grow in more and more, the more that we stay close, the more that we stay near to Jesus. Remember, growing in godliness, or here, growing in this divine nature, happens through knowledge of Jesus. It's in knowing him that we become more like him. Being in a relationship with him, that we grow to do the things that he does. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like when you go to a really good Korean barbecue restaurant. Okay, what happens? You know, you're eating there, you're cooking all this meat in front of you, everything's good, right? What happens when you leave that restaurant? Well, what happens is if it's a really good place, you come out smelling like that restaurant, right? When you're in the presence of that place, you take that aroma, right? You take that wonderful pork essence, blanket it on you, and you leave with it, right? The vegetarians or vegans here, 
going to find a new gathering. (laughs) Hey, we talked about Acts 10, right? The blanket came down. Enjoy, right? Enjoy those, that port. (laughs) Right? You take that essence with you. On the other side of that, okay, that's a good example for most of us. The other side of that, if you've ever been to, let's say, like a sketchy bar or a cigar lounge, right, don't raise your hand or nod your head if you've been there, right? But if you just so happen to be at any one of those places at any time in your life, you know what happens when you leave that place. You leave that place with quite the aroma, right? Not the best. Not the best. The point I'm, I'm trying to make, though, is when you stay close to Jesus, when you stay near to the person of Jesus Christ, you will find yourself looking more like him. You'll, you'll find yourself speaking the words that, that he would and did speak. You'll be carrying around just just naturally, you'll be carrying around the, the sweet aroma of Christ, sharing more and more in this divine nature, the more that you stick near to him. And then Peter says something at the end of this verse to describe our conversion when he says this, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, let me just say, a lot of people throughout history a lot of people throughout church history. It's why we be reminded of the gospel. Again, this is why Second Peter is here, to remind ourselves of the truth, because a lot of people throughout history, church history, have gone the wrong direction with this verse and have led a lot of people, countless people, astray because of this verse. So let me tell you what this doesn't mean. Okay? This doesn't mean that you can no longer sin Because you're a Christian and you have this divine nature that is actually taught by some. There's a theology of that. That once you become a follower of Jesus, you can no longer sin anymore because you have a divine nature. And so false teachers have gone around saying that based on this verse, it's not just you can't, it's impossible for the Christian to sin. And so now in Christ, again, you can just live however you want to live. But listen, that, that couldn't be further from the truth. Right? Don't take that away from this text and run away from the one who teaches that doctrine. Like, like if we can't sin anymore, it's a, it's a great question for this person. If we can't sin anymore, why would Peter challenge us to live a life of godliness? Right? <laughs> and so, which is the whole basis of the letter. And so what Peter What Peter does mean by this, though, what he does mean is that now, with this new divine nature, we have this new relationship to sin. We have a new relationship with sin, meaning that that sin no longer has the same power over us that it once had. That's what Peter is saying. That's why he says that we've escaped. We've escaped it because it is powerless against us, that Yes, we are not fully free from sin. And, and, and we won't be until that blessed day when Jesus Christ returns for the church. The day that we're waiting for. The day that we're promised. But praise God. Praise God that sin no longer has any rule and reign 
over our lives. Praise God that we are no longer powerless. We are no longer hopeless when it comes to sin. Again, we have power for life and for godliness. That's Peter's message to us here. We have escaped, therefore, the corruption of sin. So these, these are the privileges that we have as followers of Jesus Christ today. Peter starts his letter by giving us the foundation for godliness. The foundation of a godly life. He tells us it starts, it all starts with the righteousness of Christ. He says that because of Jesus' righteousness, you and I have right standing with God today. And then with that comes power for godliness. With that comes hope-filled promises. And with that comes the privilege, the privilege of being a partaker of Jesus' divine nature. We partake in this glorious salvation that is already being experienced and not yet fully fulfilled. So as we, as we close, the last thing I want to say and I want us to see as, as we open Second Peter uh, is this, that ultimately, ultimately, the Christian life centers around Jesus. The beginning, the opening, the greeting of Second Peter declares this to us strongly. It shouts this message to us that the, the Christian life centers around the person of Jesus Christ. This is so clear as, as Peter opens. I mean, think about it. Everything in this passage that we've talked about today, everything we've just looked at is in, through, and for Jesus. Peter's identity as a servant and as an apostle, it's, it's for Jesus Christ. A righteous standing comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Divine power, his precious promises, being partakers. It's all been granted to us, he said. It's all been given to us by Jesus Christ. And therefore, the message here is that our only hope, our only hope is in Jesus Christ. So as we work through the rest of this letter, over the next however many weeks it takes. But, but not only that, as we go throughout our, our, our lives, let's remember, as we open Second Peter, let's remember that Jesus is central to everything. Your salvation, your godliness, right, your pursuit of him, everything that you are and all you do, Jesus is central. Amen? Let me pray for you.